0: Welcome back to School of Science Radio Podcast. I'm Gino Ganello, joined by Matthew Chandler, as always. And this week, um, our special guest this week is Patty Boyland. He's the Everton correspondent for The Athletic, also the co-host of The Athletic's uh, Glad Tidings podcast and a contributor to The Blue Room podcast. Patty, how are things going today? I'm
1: good, thanks, guys. Thank you for having me on. Oh, pleasure.
0: Yeah, it's it's great to have you. And, um, you know, we'll, we're going to break down the Everton season today, kind of piece by piece as we go starting the preseason. Um, and, you know, nobody better to help us break that down than a guy who works pretty closely with the club in Patty. Um, Patty, let's just start off with kind of the preseason, how things worked, um, who we brought in. Obviously, the ins were Gomes, Lossell, um, Delft, uh, Gabamin, Keen, Awobi, and Sidibe. Um, and the outs, most notably, Jagielka, Vlasic, um John Joe Kenny on loan um you know Gay of course um so let's kind of look at the season um and the preseason how things went obviously we went in with just three center backs missed out on Zaha Awobi possibly assigning instead of him let's start with the outs um Gay did we underestimate going into the season how important he truly was to the club
1: <laughs> it's a really good question. and I guess that depends on who you listen to. In quite a long time, Marco Silva and Marcel Brands and people associated with Everton stressed the importance of Idrissa Gay. And if you ever took a look at his statistical output, he was effectively doing the defensive duties of potentially two players. At times in, in the Everton midfield... That said, there were also some Everton fans, and I know this from experience, talking about the need to revamp the midfield, even with gay look to bring in somebody that could do most of his defensive work, but also add something more in the in the final third. I, I actually believe gay's passing was slightly underrated and he was he was much more secure in possession than most people would have had you believe. But the proof is very, very much in the pudding on this one. And you look at the way in which um, Everton have fared since Gay left. And I think they really have struggled to to replace his energy, his legs, his defensive nous. Uh, and that, that, that was the case in the first game of the season. It was the case in the last game of the season for sure against, against Bournemouth. What I would say is that I don't think Everton underestimated that task. I think they knew how hard it would be to find somebody to to do that do that role. They've just been very unlucky with injuries, unlucky with um, succession planning as well. Some of the guys that probably they expected to come onto the scene but maybe didn't. and um, It led to this big melting pot of problems with the midfield and, and everything else. So, Put simply, Idris Gay was a very good player for Everton. I think he was always going to be hard to replace.
0: Was, um, was 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 Gabamin considered, obviously, going into the season, was he someone who they considered to be a direct replacement for him, someone who they thought could fill that role? Obviously, the injuries, we will never know. But was that something that you got the sense of um, when uh, he was brought in?
2: We, we were very
1: much told that Everton knew internally when they were scouting players that they couldn't find a, an Idrissa Gay replica, a like-for-like replacement, they knew that they would have to sacrifice some of the defensive qualities in search of somebody that was able to, to do some of that, but also carry them forward in other parts of the pitch. I think they always felt as though that if they went down that route again, that they would struggle to match Day's kind of assuredness in possession, his ability to keep hold of the ball and move it forward. So in the end, they looked at the restructuring option. They they got in somebody in Gabarin who of Course has been unlucky with injuries, but had he stayed fit, you'd have seen a mobile, aggressive player in and out of possession. They also brought in obviously Fabian Delph, who was very much seen as part of the picture too. And I think over the summer, Silver and Brands, to a certain extent, both toyed with the idea of this not necessarily being four, two, three, one, the favoured formation in Silver's um, first season, but that in theory they could look to do things slightly differently if needs be. So potentially seeing um, Gomez, Delph, and Gabamon potentially lining up in the three-man midfield. That obviously didn't come to fruition. We, we didn't see Gabamon on the pitch anywhere near enough. We obviously didn't see Fabian Delph on the pitch anywhere near enough, if, if we're being honest as well. Um, like I say, it, it's a mixture of struggling to replace Idrissa Gay anyway. It's an, um, also blended, I think, with the fact that they have been unlucky with some of the guys they brought in and just how little game time they have
0: had this season. Matthew, anything to add to the Gay situation? What were your thoughts on it as well?
2: Um, I would certainly put myself in the category Paddy was talking about, about using Gay's departure as a kind of catalyst to revamp midfield. Because I think as good as Gay was in that midfield three, I think you can also look at it and see Gilfrey Sigerson was going to be 30 last September. So you know, I don't think it's it's as easy as saying when you're thirty you're on the decline, but I think you kind of have to start planning ahead. Um obviously Schneidlin was still at the club then, he was kind of in the same same bracket. Gomez, I don't I didn't really see it as strengthening, it was kind of more just tying down an asset that we already had on loan, Movie. Um and I think maybe it's easy to say in hindsight because of you know the Fabian Delph sign hasn't worked, and... I mean, we kept two, the first two games, Devamon played, we kept clean sheets, didn't we? And then we didn't keep another clean sheet, I think, until October. So I'm not saying, you know, you can attribute that just to him. but And I think Paddy's right about Gay's passing as well. I think he was often the man who would break up opposition attacks. But he often, I often felt that Gay was kind of the player who would almost get attacks going um, in the other direction as well. Um, I remember one game last season, especially against Fulham, um, when he was, I thought the best player on the pitch, who really sort of turned the game. And was really instrumental with uh, to Everton winning that game. Um, but I don't, I don't know because we we haven't seen the best of Gubanin, so it's hard. To, it's obviously easy to say Everton, um, you know, made a mess of it or didn't do their sort of due diligence with the midfield. But I think um, you kind of have to give them a pass to to an extent anyway because of. Problems that they couldn't have foreseen. And obviously, Gomez's injury as well just kind of exacerbated that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just to your point about Gay um, really starting the attack, I mean, uh, you know, his pressing ability was, you know, if you just think back about anything about him and him playing for us, uh, the pressing ability often turned the ball over and, and you're right, started that attack. And he was instrumental, like you said, in, in doing um, things that we didn't get to see too much this season. But Before we uh, move on to the actual season, um, let's talk about the ins, uh, the players we brought in. Patty, um, we'll start with you. Right or wrong summer signings as a whole, I guess you can say, with the benefit of hindsight?
1: I think I'm going to sit on the fence a little bit here and say that we need to judge Moise Keane, Alex Awobi, Gabamin, and and several others over an extended period of time. I I don't really want to get into – whether player X is has been good for Everton over the course of one season, because I think what Marcel Brands is trying to do is something a little bit different. He's, he's looking at players that have got high upside, lots of room for growth, and he hopes that they will develop over a, a set period of time. So I suppose the jury is still out on most of those. What I would say is if you look back to the previous summer's business on the whole those guys came in and made far more of an immediate impact. So that's Luca Dean, Richarlison, the the loan signings for for Franjé Gomez and and Kurt Zuma as well. On the whole, they fared much better in the short term than the 2019-20 crop. Also, though, you do have to look at what Everton didn't do, which I think in this case is much more important than what they did. Um, They didn't get... Another option across the forward line, another winger to, to, to spread the goals around the side. Something that becomes an Achilles heel for the side. I think when you look at the, the scoring um, charts, and Calvert-Lewin obviously find the back, back of the net with decent regularity. Beyond that, Bernard was Everton's top goal scorer with three, uh, which just is nowhere near good enough, as we know, for a side with, with top six operations. That was one failure. You look back at pre-season, I think Everton scored three goals. Two of them were from players who by January were no longer at the club. Lewis Gibson on loan at Fleetwood, a defender. Joe Williams, who signed permanently for for Wigan over the summer. And the other one actually was another defender in Seamus Coleman. That kind of pointed the way forward. I'm not a firm believer in preseason being the definitive indicator for how a side is going to perform. We've seen good Everson sides have bad preseasons, and vice versa. But In that case, you could see that the the side was short of attacking quality in in a number of different ways, certainly creative quality too. We saw players struggling to get minutes in central midfield. I think something I wrote about at the time, shortly after the window closed, was the failure to sign a fourth central defender. I think it was well well documented that Everton wanted that fourth option, that they felt they were one short. Um, Lewis Gibson was not going to be considered as a senior option. Uh, over the course of last season and they did try they they really really did try so I, th- I think it started off with pretty promising noises from Kurt Zuma about coming back which is why Everton pursued him for a long time in that window probably longer than they should have done then while they were at the table with Chelsea for Keo Tomori comes up as an option that looks like it's going to happen on loan until David Luiz throws a tantrum and decides that he wants to go to to, to Arsenal. Chelsea then keep Tamori and, and stall on, on that deal with Everton, the loan deal with Everton. I think it just went on and on and on. Chris Smalling was suggested. Uh, Marcus Rocco was suggested. Really happy that didn't happen because just just don't see how he would have stayed fit for any period of time. So it was a checkered. Certainly at best we can say it was a chequered summer uh, and it was quite interesting, one of our athletic correspondents spoke to Marco Silva last week as it happened uh, and discussed what went wrong. Uh, and of course, Marco's got his very own version of events um, as kind of excused some of his own failings. One thing I did agree on though, was that he, he looks back on that 2019-20 window with regret, That he feels they didn't do enough, but it didn't set them up for the season. And actually, I think Everton were pretty lucky that it took until the end of the season, really, to see the lack of fourth centre-back exploited. Um, Obviously, Jared Brantway came in, did a good job uh, in those final games of the the campaign. But until then, Everton were pretty lucky that Mina, Keane and Holgate managed to stay fit and Holgate emerged as a first-choice option. Uh, So... it wasn't great. It wasn't great, but I hope that you look at Moise Keane and Alex Awobi, and in years to come, they will start to grow in influence. They will start to improve. They are still young players, and I still think there are upside to them, which might mean that we didn't see the best of them this season, but we may well do next year, year after that, and the year after that.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Matthew. Uh, your opinion on, I guess, the signings and you know, looking back at them.
2: I think um, I agree with Paddy on about the pre-season points. I think while you, you can read too much into it, I think it's quite evident from watching some of those games um, and just how tedious Everton's football was in part of that as well. That, uh, it was kind of obvious they were going to lack sort of potency outside of Richardson at that time. It's kind of before Dominic Calvert-Lewin really came into his own as well. And I think... Um, I think maybe we're probably guilty of expecting too much from Moyes Keane so far as well. I think it's kind of easy to forget um, because he's a big money signer and he played for a club as big as Juventus. How, I guess, inexperienced he is that's really. Like at first-team level, he hadn't played, I don't think, that many games with Juventus even before, before he left. Um, with, with the three centre-backs, was going to ask Paddy, do you, do you think he hung his hat on Zuma for too long then? Do you think? Yeah. Do you think he should have explored more other options sooner?
1: Yeah, I, I, I just think they felt as though they had found a natural partner for, yeah. for Michael Keane. and uh, Keen obviously had kind of come back with glowing reviews about working with Zuma. Zuma seemed to have the things Keen lacked, and vice versa. If if you look at the partnership, I think Silver and and Brands, to an extent as well, looked at the. Pretty positive noises coming from Zuma, and decided that they were potentially going to pursue this. I think what turns the dial a little bit for Everton is when Lampard is appointed as Chelsea manager. Lampard decides to put his faith in youth and wants to assess the likes of Zuma, Tamori and various others. So I think it's a combination of those things, a combination of getting those positive noises but not being able to get it over the line. You've got to remember that in these processes, you've got various people weighing in and, and deciding, kind of, we'll give, we'll give them their two cents, if we want to put it that way, as to who um, they want as Everton's fourth choice option, as it would have been in, in this case. Reaching a consensus is not always easy, but they did reach a consensus on Kurt Zuma, which, which tells you something. But like I say, it wasn't only that the fact that then they looked at Tamori. And that didn't happen because of the David Luiz knock-on effect. They looked at various others. I don't think they could agree on Marcus Rocco after all. And certainly not when it was decided that he needed to leave Manchester United on a permanent transfer. That just didn't really make any kind of sense financially for Everton as a deal. But others, Chris Smalling, just didn't really work out either. Didn't get too far down the line. So they did have a list and they did try for other names on the list. I think if circumstances had been different and maybe if Lampard had come in slightly sooner and Zuma had almost said to Everton, look, I'm not interested, I want to play at Chelsea, then we actually would have got the the fourth choice centre-back that we, we obviously craved. The other thing to add though, of course, is that had they got Kurt Zuma, the sliding doors moment is that probably Mason Holgate wouldn't have progressed this season in the way that we would have expected, where one kind of opportunity goes awry, another obviously beckons and, and Holgate I think took that relatively well over the course of the whole season, and, and remarkably well in the second half of the campaign. So uh, it is interesting to kind of look back on the failure to sign a 4th true centre-back and wonder what might have been
2: yeah. when it
1: comes to Mason Holgate. Because I, I actually don't believe we would we would see him in this position right now, yeah. and that it, it probably would be some way off the the first team that we we wouldn't have discovered his potential. So. I suppose I'm trying to put a positive hat on here at the end of a very long and draining season, but um, yeah, that, that, I, I do think that probably they, well, they will go back into the market this summer, looking to find predominantly a left-sided defender and one that can play on on his left foot and open up that kind of side of the pitch a little bit more for Luca Dean Bernard
2: etc. I, th- I think the other thing I was I was going to say is I don't think, with the exception of Gay, I don't think that there were many players you left Evans where you could really argue a case for them staying either. I think they've did a pretty good job of of getting rid of some deadwood. I think, you know, uh players like Jagielka, Williams, Vlasic, even Luckman, I think, you know, there's kind of debate about whether to keep him, but I think probably the right decision to let him go. James McCarthy, Morales, um obviously learning out. John Joe Kenny seems to have helped his career to be playing regular football in the Bundesliga for a year. Um so I think that's certainly one Everton got right last summer, and I think I think we're the ends of what I think on on paper. I think at the time, I think you couldn't really make too many complaints. I think it's just how it's played out, and a lot of that is obviously extenuating circumstances as well. Um, but I I certainly don't think you could say it was as successful a summer as as the year before for Silver.
0: No, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It was, um, you know, I, I agree in the point that you know, I think there's a lot of there's the jury's still out on a lot of these guys, especially a guy like Moise Keen who didn't get the time that maybe probably um, he he probably needed to kind of prove himself. We've seen sparks from him. So hopefully the next season we'll, we'll see where that takes us. And, And, and Patty, you're right. I mean, who knows what Mason Holgate looks like today if a year ago we signed Kurt Zuma and Mason Holgate doesn't get regular playing time. So, um, Certainly an, an interesting summer to, to kind of break down. And you guys have already talked a little about the preseason. So unless you guys have anything to add to that, um, I, I was going to move on to our time under Marco Silva and the club's time under Marco Silva. And, um, you know, it, it's, there's, there's a lot to break down here. But obviously he was sacked the day after the Liverpool defeat, 5-2. Um, left Everton in 18th place, 14 points out of 15 games. Paddy, um, fair decision to get rid of him at the point that, um, at the point that Everton did?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, even in Silver's camp, there is a feeling that while they would have liked more time, that the results just weren't there to effectively condone the, the extension, <laughs> the stay of execution, if, if you want to call it, that you've already referenced there at, at that point in the season, Everton had uh, down with the dead men in the, in the relegation places and uh, the momentum was not a positive one they were on a concerted downward slump silver obviously gets sacked after liverpool but let's be honest i think the writing was on the wall at least a month earlier against norwich Um, one of the weirdest most toxic atmospheres of being (laughs) privy to at goodison for quite some time i remember being sat in the in the press box which is in the main stand at goodison for, for those that aren't familiar with it And just to the left, you've got the director's area, or just to our left, you've got the director's area. I remember seeing people screaming at Bill Kenwright and Farhad Mashiri? he's he's got to go, he's got to go, we want him gone now. Because they'd just seen this really insipid performance from a side that just didn't know or look like it knew what it was doing. Again, you can trace things back to the summer. I don't think it was all on Marco Silva. Um, The recruitment wasn't great. They didn't get a lot of the things done that they needed to. And he was unlucky with injuries. We, we, we have to say that. Certainly in midfield, um, they didn't get to rub of the green with, with some of the things there. The problem was, though, that you look at Silver, and by the end, he, he looked like a dead man walking. He looked like he'd, he'd <laughs> he sunk into his seat. He didn't seem to believe it himself. Uh, He got more and more downbeat, both in terms of his tone with the media, in terms of his persona uh, on the sidelines. I think it was a really negative atmosphere at the moment. Not necessarily inside the club, but connected to the club. You go on the terraces at Goodison on match days. People didn't have faith in the project anymore. And by people, I mean the supporters more than anything else. And while Marcel Brown's persevered, with him for a long time, and that helped Farhad Mishiri continue to do so. I think by the end, there came a point where a decision did need to be taken, that Everton were just going the wrong way. And I actually think that, in many ways, what sunk Silver was the inability to change. He persevered with systems and personnel, and maybe compromised his own beliefs, uh, a little bit is is out some of his own principles in in another uh, in another sense, to the point where you know not longer knew what a Marco Silva team was all about. First season, particularly after the Millwall kind of low point, Everton picked up. It was fast tempo, high press, particularly at Goodison Park. They they managed to beat some some big sides, some top sides, and I think one of the results they thumped Manchester United four 0 But things looked like they really had clicked. The transitions were fast uh, on the counter. Idrissa Gay and Andrea Gomez forged a good partnership in central midfield. Zuma and Michael Keane at the back. It's those components of those team were taken out, though. Uh, that team, sorry, were taken out. And Idrissa uh, Gay's absence shone a light on just how important he was to that midfield and that system. If you're going to press high, you're going to have to realise that in the Premier League, sides will be able to occasionally play through you. I think what Everton did was they, when sides got through that initial press, they didn't have anybody there like Gay to sweep things up, which effectively meant if you negated Everton's high press, you had the opportunity to create a very good chance on goal. Um, so he was the, Gay was the kind of the guy that made it all work for me. Uh, so losing him was big. Like we said, midfield injuries, not on that four through centre-back, not getting extra goals in that front line. And by the end, it just hadn't come off for Marco Silva. He'd persevered with 4 3 one and Guilfi Sigurdsson, I think, for far too long, despite being a guy that, quite avowedly, when he came in, wanted to play 4-3-3. yeah, you, kind of, you, you compromise your principles and then you don't shift as much as you need to, then I think you're in trouble. And the results just weren't there for him at the end, even if Marcel Brands and others did try to give him time.
2: Matthew? I think, um, I think for me, I think the, the moment silver kind of reached the point of no return for me, was probably the Sheffield United game in September, which might seem slightly early, especially given that he still was in the job for another ten weeks or so after that. but I remember just being in that game and thinking Evan had a lot of time to turn that game around with Sheffield United went ahead, and that, there wasn't any sense of a sort of plan I remember I can't remember who it was, but I remember we Every substitute came on as an attacking player, which is fine, it's understandable, but there didn't seem to be any sort of system for them to to fit into. It felt like he was flinging on attacking players at will. Um, and then, that, obviously, the Burnley game a few weeks later, I remember being at that. And then, at Turf Moor, you've got like a long walk across one, the touchline from to the uh, to the tunnel. I remember silver in particular I mean the players did as well I remember silver in particular getting a barrage of of abuse full time in that game as he walked across and it just felt like i'm not saying i don't think fans necessarily got silver the sack, but i don't I think you know when you see managers lose the fans, they very rarely kind of come back from that i think and I felt it did feel like the writing was on the wall for him even then um and then obviously he changed it a bit with the, in the, with a in the win over West Ham, dropping Sigurdsson and and moving Iwobi into the middle where he looked a lot more comfortable and and probably had his best game in Evertonshire I would say this season Um, but there was no sort of didn't feel like there was any continuity in that Um, kind of reverse type and then it it kind of felt like he did try to change but again it felt like change for change's sake to me I remember seeing Moyes Keane play at right wing and then seeing Cenk Tosen and that spine of the kind of at the end of his tenure with of like Tosen, and just felt very one-paced and, and one-dimensional. Didn't fit and you know, the Southampton win, for example, I remember he, he, the substitutions in that game, I think Alex O'Wobby again made a difference, but then the Norwich game, he went back to playing this very sort of sluggish spine, um, which Norwich, Norwich exploited pretty much all game. I think Everton never really looked like um never with the better side in any of that game really. Um and so while it kind of it felt obvious that Evan really genuinely didn't want to sack him and they really wanted Silver to turn it around I kind of applaud them in a way for give felt like they gave him every opportunity, but I think the end just had to make a change and uh while I think Silver, you know I think there's been more sort of disliked managers at Goodison. I don't think there's any real ill will to him. Um, I don't think anyone would argue that. I think everyone would. Sorry, I think everyone would agree that probably his time was up when it was up. So.
0: Yeah, with the you know with Silva, it's it's hard to knock when they got rid of him just because of of how dire things were at that time, but kind of play devil's advocate with, you know, in a similar way to stay on the positive side of things. I mean, there were multiple VAR decisions, multiple penalty shouts that could have gone Silva's way that could have changed how, um, you know, how we look at his tenure and how maybe Everton and the fans looked at his tenure during that time. And who knows? Uh, You know, maybe it was good that things – you know, we obviously complain about VAR and and the penalty shouts and whatnot, but we may not be sitting or we may not have gotten Carlo Ancelotti because he could have went somewhere else. We could be in a different situation now with him if Silva gets more time because of some of those decisions. So, um, obviously it's not what you want to like, you know, um, you know, rest your hat on. You know, you don't want to, you know, you would love to get those decisions. You don't want Silva to get sacked, of course, but um, you know, in the end, um, who knows what what it looks like if if some of those decisions go his way what we can move now to um, you know more of uh, Ferguson now as as we talked about Silva getting uh, sacked Patty was it the right decision to start here was it the right decision to go with him over Unsworth who clearly had more experience as being a caretaker but didn't really have the track record in doing so when he had taken over from past managers
1: this one's easier because the benefits of hindsight suggests that it was the right decision. But yeah. Ferguson coming in as interim coach was the catalyst for the improvement that we saw from Everton December through to probably just before lockdown. As it happened, let, let's not think too much of that Chelsea game. Um, I've tried to blank out from my memory the, the game at Stamford Bridge. Um, but Ferguson was the catalyst, G. You look at the, the vibrancy, the passion he instilled. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not usually one to get sucked into that kind of thing. I try to look at, take the emotion out of situations. But I think it was exactly the tonic Everton needed at that moment in time. They needed a galvanising figure that the supporters could rally around. Somebody that would instill more of a sense of passion and belonging on the pitch in the players' Um, Ferguson was that man, in fairness. Um, I remember being slightly skeptical when I saw his name being bandied about. What, what would he bring? He's been a coach to an extent, although not a particularly important one, under a succession of failed managers. Um, what's he going to bring to the table? But I, re- I remember listening back to Bill Kenwright explaining the thought process behind this. And I think he, in his mind, had Ferguson. As a potential candidate to be the interim coach when they knew they were going to sack silver, but he had to convince Mar- um not Marco Silva, sorry slip <laughs> he had to convince um <laughs> come convince farhad mashiri that it was the right decision, so they mm-hmm. met him in, in the Finch farm canteen as it happened they, they they bumped into him and Ferguson was almost given this mini job interview right there in front of Mashiri and Kenwright, where he had to explain what he would do what. Kind of what were going to be the tenets of his everton short-lived everton regime, and one of the first things he said was, "I want to get more out of the forward line I think if we I know Dominic Carver and well if I pair him with the something will click with those two uh, I'll go back to basics a little bit and yeah it won't always be pretty, but it will be competitive and it will be more akin to Everton than what we saw in the kind of the slow build-up of the Martinez years of part of Silver's reign towards the end. And he got the job, obviously, as, as, as everything showed, and went on to do a really good job. I think in the circumstances, again, blighted by injury, and I look back to some of his final team sheets, particularly the one against Leicester City in the Carabao Cup, and it's Tom Davis and Mason Holgate in central midfield, a, a real makeshift pair. Um, uh, Anthony Gordon comes on for his first game of the season. and It just looks a little bit patchwork. Manchester United obviously managed to get a good, credible 1-1 draw away there. And the fans really took to him. And I think that just mattered an awful lot when you had somebody, I think, who was perceived, rightly or wrongly, by the fan base in silver as being slightly cold, slightly detached. Don't always think that was fair because actually in our slightly privileged position in the media, you can speak one-on-one with these people. And I think in small groups, Marco was engaging. Um, a decent man and good company, uh, but it just didn't show it. I think with the fans, the fans didn't really feel as though they ever got to grips with him, got, got to know him, and that afford, uh, kind of afforded him less time. I think Ferguson was the antidote to that. If we talk about cold and detached, you certainly can't say those things about... Is he, well, he's the polar opposite, isn't he? You can't say those things about Duncan Ferguson. Hugs with ball boys and um, fist pumps and rallying calls before the game. Um, and just a sense of Edmonton feeling like Edmonton again. Um, so it was a foundation from which, obviously, uh, Ancelotti built. He credited Duncan with certainly the decision to go two up front in the early part of his spell. Um, so, yeah, we're lucky here, aren't we? Hindsight proved that it was the right decision, so I don't sound like too much of a fool in saying that it was a good call as well.
2: Matthew? did uh, I didn't... Isn't there a story about Ferguson decided to take the job after he had a bath or something. <laughs> I've not,
1: I've not heard that one. I've not heard that one, but it, it's a great story. <laughs> uh, if, it, if, it, if it's true, if it's true or not. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, I mean, it certainly worked, didn't it? So. Uh, yeah, I, I just think I don't think it was necessarily sustainable. I think you you certainly what Paddy said about the team lineups to the end and how sort of. Um, you know, threadbare the squad was, I think, was kind of partly, certainly at least partly, self-inflicted, you know, the the injuries Everton picked up and the uh, Chelsea win, especially. Um, But it just felt, didn't feel like it necessarily had to be a long-term solution then. I think it just felt like um, just a bit of a a revival, I guess, and and sort of return to, to form for Everton afterwards what had gone before, and, and um, yeah, I mean, the, Ch- the Chelsea game is kind of the standout game and, and obviously result, um, but it, it felt like, for whatever reason, so, and, and I'm sure, like Paddy said, I'm sure Silver didn't mean to, or certainly didn't, didn't try to appear, you know, deliberately detached or anything, but it just felt kind of refreshing more than anything I think, just to see some fella who obviously loves... Everton, um just bouncing down the touchline, hugging ball boys and, and kicking every ball with with his sweatbands on, and his broken watch, and whatever else. Um, and I, I also think people maybe dismiss Ferguson the way Ferguson approached some of the games tactically too easily. I think it's easy to call his style kind of rudimentary and and one 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 dimensional in its in its approach, but it got, at the end of the day, it got results for a team that had barely got any results before he before took over. Um, and I actually thought, so in a way, I found the United game was more satisfying because the way I went there and really sort of dug in and got a really creditable 1-1 draw, having been about 15 minutes away from winning that game. Um, the Leicester fight back, the first half of Leicester was pretty turgid, but the, the fight back, um, he deserves a lot of credit for that. And I think the Arsenal game, I think, was just a, a culmination of three pretty grueling games in the space of 10 days or so. Um, so I think all in all, I think you have to credit a lot of sort of salvaging of this season to Duncan Ferguson, definitely. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and Paddy, before we move on from this, maybe from your perspective, you'd be able to give us a little bit more on this because uh, we, you know, we're we don't see a lot of the stuff that goes on. Do you, does, does do the players get, um, you know, obviously I'm sure some players start to get a little detached from certain situations. is You know, in a Silva situation where things aren't working, I'm sure some players tend to kind of zone out. How much of a difference did you see or do you typically see in a locker room when there's a change of manager and, you know, when things are going so poorly and, and, and what is truly that new manager bump?
1: The most profound change I've seen in the atmosphere at the club, and I include the dressing room and, and with the first team squad in this, is when Ancelotti was appointed. It just felt like everybody knew that Everton had appointed a world-class manager. Maybe that doesn't answer your question necessarily, but I think what Ferguson's arrival did was it gave players that had been on the fringes, that hadn't really had much of a look in, in their preferred roles, um, more of a chance to, or more, more of the feeling that they were able to perform. So I've mentioned there that one of the players he was particularly close to was Dominic Calvert Lewin. He was obviously given a central role, in, literally and <laughs> metaphorically, within um, Ferguson's setup. Richarlison moves off front as well, which I think obviously helps both players. Tom Davis at the end obviously hugs, end of the Chelsea game obviously hugs Ferguson as well. Anthony Gordon was close to, to Ferguson. So I think for some of those guys, it felt like they had a manager that understood what they needed. Some of those younger players, he understood that he would do the most to maximise their talents. The only point I would make is that I saw a lot of people saying towards the end of Silver's time that he had lost the dressing room. I don't necessarily think that was the case. Um, a lot of the really important figures in the Everton team and by that, I don't mean necessarily the senior ones, but I mean top players. Luca Dean, Richarlison, still loved Marco Silva till the end. Uh, they were, they, I wouldn't say they were pleading his case, but they were, would have been more than happy for him to stay. As it happened, we know Richarlison's spoken of him now several times. As a, as a father figure, Luca Dean really enjoyed playing under him. I know various others did as well. And it wasn't necessarily that the squad down tools and decided Marco Silva is not the right man. I think actually there was quite a lot of sympathy and that the players also knew that maybe they hadn't clicked. They hadn't done all they could technically in terms of their ability to, to maximise Silva's chances. Um, and that Silva had also been unlucky with injuries. That was something that was felt within the dressing room too. So I don't think it's quite as simple as this idea of him downing tools and then Ferguson comes in and everything's rosy again. One of the big changes is that purely and simply, instead of loads of Everton fans turning up to Goodison slightly grumpy, wanting to grumble about team news and what they're likely to see over the course of 90 minutes, when Everton fans arrived at Chelsea, it felt like a genuinely big game. Everybody was on board. Everybody wanted Ferguson to do well. You could sense the anticipation, and I wasn't there as a journalist that day, I was actually there as a supporter. You could sense the anticipation hours before kickoff, And I think actually before games, Goodison had almost started to feel a bit like a morgue. Matthew made a really interesting point earlier, when you lose the fans with Everton, that's the end of the road for you. And I do buy into that as well. I think Goodison can be a great place to play football when things are going well and everybody's pulling in the same direction but you do not want to be an Everton player when things are going badly because you're so
0: Is it it different at other clubs? Is is Everton just have that fan base that's so passionate that things are just magnified I guess to a (laughs) sense when they're bad or when they're good or is it kind of similar around the league? I think Everton
2: is slightly
1: unique not not solely unique Everton is slightly unique in so far as they have one of the final kind of old stadiums in English football. You know that if you're playing on the wing, you'll hear just about every word of what's being said. And that obviously, for better or for worse, and that obviously isn't the case at the Emirates or the Etihad or any of the new stadia. So it it becomes abundantly apparent when people don't like what you're doing at Goodison. it can get volatile, and I think the reason it gets volatile quickly is that Everton fans have had to be patient for an awfully long time. That while... Loads of other clubs have had success, even sporadically. And you look at Swansea City, Leicester City side of that ilk. And then also, obviously, our neighbours, the traditional, conventional top six now in the Premier League. They've all had success to varying extents. Everton are obviously a powerhouse, If you were a powerhouse of English football, but the fans have been staffed and they've seen false dawn after false dawn after false dawn. I think the bit of apathy is being bred that occasionally spills over into anger and just makes things very, very difficult if the fans see things going wrong on the pitch. So that kind of combination of things I don't think helps any under-pressure manager. Roberto Martinez, I felt, was afforded slightly more time among the fans, Obviously, he survived into his third season purely because he did the standard Everton tropes. He seemed to have bought the club. He seemed to work hard. Um, I'm not looking at this cynically at all, by the way, but obviously he invited Howard Kendall to Finch Farm. and That was seen as an attempt to engage with Everton Football Club and its traditions. We didn't really see that from Marco, and I'm not suggesting he didn't want to do that, but we just didn't see that from him. So when he leaves this kind of bloated, unbalanced squad and somebody like Duncan Ferguson comes in, the players know they have to perform and they know that the fans are going to be with them at Chelsea. And I think that made a huge, huge difference.
0: And that's, you know, it's, it's just hearing the inside of this is, is so great to just hear from your perspective um, and kind of understand that because at least for me, um, being over here in America, I don't really understand the atmosphere and kind of all of that. I've never been to Goodison. So to hear that is certainly interesting for me and, and for a lot of the American listeners that we have. Um, but you mentioned Ancelotti and kind of how that was the big moment. So let's get into him right now. Let's get into his tenure here at the club. Um, Matthew, we'll go to you first. What are the biggest improvements you've seen under Ancelotti?
2: Um, it's kind of this probably seems a bit contradictory now, considering some of the sort of post-lockdown performances we've seen, anyway. But I think I think there is certainly more mental resilience, maybe. I mean, you, you think about like the Watford, the win at Watford when we were 2 0 down. Um, the, the the way we sort of grind grinded out some of those wins, like the Newcastle and the Burnley, at first two games in two days, pretty pretty um, sort of dogged affairs but Evan did well obviously there to get six points out of six um, but I think what it's also showed actually is how, how much work there is to be done I think up until the Bournemouth defeat last week I think every team we'd lost to had been in the top seven I think six of them were or five or six of them were away as well so you, you can see straight away then that Everton obviously have this kind of mental block when it comes to... And obviously there is a lack of a disparity in quality as well. But it does feel, certainly for Everton fans who've lived through years of these results, that there is a mental block there. Um, so maybe it's, maybe it's good that he's, he's uh, become aware of that so quickly because it means he can, he can get on to sorting it out quicker. But um, And I think Everton are a better just a better team than they were before Ancelotti, I think. The 4-4-2, we've obviously seen its pitfalls like as the season drew on, but I think um, I like the the combination up front between Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin. They seem to work in tandem really well and play off each other. Um, I, I liked um, the introduction of Anthony Gordon towards the end of the season as well. I thought he had something on the wing. I thought... Although he didn't very he did very little before, I thought Bernard improved a lot as well um at the start of Ancelotti's uh tenure. And I think defensively, apart from the odd game, I think Evan have still looked pretty solid under Ancelotti as well. Um I think there are sort of fragments there to build a foundation on. You think of you know Luca Dean at left back, centre back, I don't think I wouldn't go so far as to say the issue last summer was kind of resolved itself. But I think there are. There's been progress there with, you know, Mina's had a, a solid season. Michael Keane is a bit up and down, but is it is, it, is it a good option? Mason Holgate's obviously come on a lot in the last twelve months. Um, obviously, the the centre midfield is obviously the big thing that needs work. But I think you know, Richarlison, Calvert-Lewin, Gordon coming through as well. Um, so there is promise there, and I think there are certainly things for Ancelotti to build off. Um, and I actually think when you see how, how dreadful Everton were in some of those uh, post-lockdown games, I think you actually need to give him some credit for just how quickly he got Everton clear of, of relegation, actually.
0: Daddy, uh your opinions. Well, you know, what, what did you see? Um, what were the biggest improvements you kind of saw um, as a whole under Ancelotti?
1: Yeah, I think I'd like to go back to something Matthew said earlier about Marco Silva, and it was that when Everton were losing games or trying to find a way back into games, Silva would often fling a load of forwards on the pitch and the side would lose structure. It was almost like if I have enough forwards right at the top end of the field and no midfield, we're just going to magically create chances and something's going to fall to them in the box. What then we saw was that Everton just had no possession to carve out chances for all the forwards they had on the pitch. I think that was one of the weakest parts of Silver's management, along with his managing offset set pieces. Uh, he just didn't seem to know how to change games while they were in flow. He didn't know how to manage them, um, for want of a better phrase. And what we've seen from our Carlo Ancelotti suggests, as you would expect, that he does know how to do that. I think back to the game against Southampton at home, where Everton were comfortably second best. Uh, in the first half, where they just were overrun all over the pitch, uh, but particularly in midfield and in between the lines. Ancelotti changes that uh, and identifies that they need to switch formation. I think Jabil Sadibi came on and they went to three at the back. And we've seen that in different games since he arrived, that they built out from the back with uh, Seamus Coleman against Burnley in Ancelotti's first game. So that tactical flexibility, while I'm not actually a massive fan of 4-4-2, and certainly not with the current group of players available to Everton, we did actually see Ancelotti change things and change things for the better. Matthew also mentioned the game against Watford there, where Everton obviously came from behind, got a monkey off their backs away from home. The away form has been really patchy now, dating back to the end of the Moyes era and probably before if we're being honest, uh, Ancelotti changed that with wins over Newcastle, obviously beat Watford in that great comeback win. Um, and there were a few others that I don't remember because my memory is particularly bad, but they, I think yeah. they, they won four away from home, didn't they, An- under Ancelotti? Norwich which is,
2: one of them, wasn't and then. Norwich
1: Sheffield was one of them, and Sheffield United as well. So four wins away from home, which is not a monumental tally by any stretch of the imagination, but when you remember what it was like... When you remember what it was like before him and you remember that he only joined late in December, I think that is a promising sign. So the game management, the away form picking up slightly in terms of points at least. And also, for those that are interested in stats, Everton's best period from an expected goals point of view is December through to late February, early March, the Expected goals is highest in the season. And it was pretty high under Marco Silva, actually, which points to him being slightly unlucky. But it was higher again, still under Ancelotti. And the expected goals against came right down as well. So obviously you've got that big disparity between the two, which points that you're going in the right direction. Everton, who never really been a creative side, certainly haven't for the last few years, looked like they could carve out chances in that 4-4 team. I just think a little bit like with Duncan Ferguson, it wasn't really sustainable. And eventually you get over that new manager band slightly and you regress to the mean. And what we all know about this squad that's still being true now is that it's lacking in quality in some places and it's lacking in depth in others. And I think while Ancelotti did well, like Matthew said, to pull Everton up the table, to get them away from relegation fears really quickly. And we saw some positive signs. Just about any manager would have struggled with the resources at his disposal in the second half of the season. So I I, I think it was promising. I, I I almost think there's an element of recency bias. You look at that final game of the season, had Everton beaten Bournemouth 3-1 instead of Bournemouth beating Everton 3-1, we'd have probably all said, okay, let, let's move on to next season. It, it wasn't great, but I'm pretty happy with the way things are going. Now, because they, they got beat, it, it feels like the world has ended and, um, it was a dreadful performance it, it must be said um, but let's not forget that I think there are overriding themes here that transcend Marco Silva certainly transcend Duncan Ferguson and definitely transcend Carlo Ancelotti too my hope is that that run that bad run towards the end will have focused minds and that people higher up at Everton now will be looking at this and thinking that they they do need to throw whatever the resources a, a possible uh, Ancelotti's disposal because I think it's quite clear that there are areas of the squad that need a lot of work.
0: Absolutely and, and you mentioned kind of how things were towards the end of the season. It did a three-month break, empty stadiums, a hectic schedule of nine games in five weeks. Did that have any impact? Uh, I mean does that how much of an impact does that have on a club like Everton post-lockdown?
1: It's a difficult question to answer, and I know I did a piece before the Merseyside derby Mm -hmm. where I was slightly fatalistic and I looked at the trend of results in the Bundesliga, the lower percentage of home wins, and I wondered what that meant for a side like Everton that placed so much stock on their home form, that relied so much on their home form. I don't actually think the Premier League followed the exact same pattern, by the way, um, and that's kind of borne out in in the statistics, but... I, my fear was that Everton were a side that needed the fans with them to push them on. that They needed to win games at Goodison to make up for the poor form away from home. And while that didn't necessarily prove to, to be the case, my other fear heading into the Merseyside side derby was that Everton were going to be undercooked. I know in the, in the first week back in training, one of the knock-on effects of players having to train by themselves effectively during lockdown is that they came back to proper contact, high-intensity training, and there were a spate of injuries. So what that meant was that while most teams were playing two, three, on average, friendlies before the restart, Everton didn't actually play one against another club. They held back, obviously, from from arranging one. I think there were our Leeds correspondents at their initial talk with Leeds, potentially overdoing something, but Bielsa dithered a bit, and Ancelotti decided that, They didn't have enough fit players simply to risk playing another club. So the only action those guys got after such a long break was a 60-minute, I think it was just over 60 minutes at Goodison Park in an intra-squad friendly. I felt that would be nowhere near enough. And I was really worried that we'd see not only fitness issues, but also poor results. So I was slightly surprised to see the start of the restart, if you want to call it that, with the draw against Liverpool, the victory over and the victories over Norwich and Leicester. That took me slightly by surprise surprise, sorry. And then we obviously had the really bad period afterwards where things started to wind themselves out, um, in a in a negative sense, kind of slightly unfurl themselves. So to answer your question, I think it probably happened the wrong way around. I was expecting them to start in a sloppy Manner, and then maybe slightly pick up some wins against teams that weren't particularly great, particularly at home. Um, But it, for some reason, worked the other way around and they just weren't able to sustain it. Like like I said, I I just think it got to the point where that crop of players were spent, that they were playing so many games in quick succession that it shone a light on weaknesses in depth and quality. We did obviously have to see Jared Branthwaite come in. He did, he did well, but he had to come in and play a role when you wouldn't have expected him to. Anthony Gordon bizarrely ends up playing at Wolves as a as a third central midfielder, which is completely not his his, his role, and that I suppose is Ancelotti looking at this and saying, I just don't have any other, anything else to do. I don't know what I can do with this current crop of players. So when you've reached that phase, you know it's you're ready for the season to end. Um, and I, I suppose the most damning indictment of the season is that we were all pretty happy and counting down the minutes until that game against Bournemouth was over.
0: Matthew, any anything to add to uh, maybe the Ancelotti era and how things kind of ended out here the past uh, past few weeks?
2: I think it probably doesn't help when you've got three months to stew the the Chelsea defeat as well. I think obviously yeah, I'm glad that there was the three-month suspension under the circumstances but um, to kind of go off that and then kind of leaves you kind of put you on a downer for however long. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of agree that I didn't expect Evan to start as, as well certain points-wise they did. Um, but then I do think the kind of they ran out of and out of energy really I think you saw again just how how threadbare the squad is um with I think we I think we all call for Angelotti to make changes um after some of the results and some of the defeats but there was an element I think of of sympathy with him in terms of what what feasibly could he do. Um when you see like two goalkeepers on the bench and you know Ellis Sims being called up, Benny Beringamy being called up to the bench. Did not have a lot of choice for me. Um, I think the empty stadiums, um, while I don't think it was massively to Everton's detriment, I think I think part of the, the sort of end of season slump was simply that. I'm not. I don't think they down tools, but I just think they lack maybe that extra bit of motivation that teams like Bournemouth and Villa had. Um, having said that, I do think a full Goodison would have demanded more from Everton's players than they gave. Certainly in the Southampton game. Probably some of the Villa game and certainly in the Bournemouth game. But that's also an issue that they're going to have to contend with at the start of next season as well, isn't it?
0: So um, it's something that they're going to have to just get better on, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. Paddy, before we, before we really move on to the end of the season, just this question kind of specifically for you, what was it like covering Everton post-lockdown? What were kind of – like, was it easy? Was it hard? Um, did, did they make things harder because of all the different safety things that you had to deal with?
1: Yeah, it was it was a different experience. I think certainly we're used as journalists to speaking to the players after the game, to speaking to Carlo in a press conference scenario, potentially doing separate interviews as well. Obviously because of the restrictions in place, we weren't able to do any of those things. And often the pre and post match press conferences were held over Zoom. I found I found them a little bit impersonal. I think you lose an element of the communication when you are all over communicating over computer screens. You lose that um, connection almost, and um, I think that definitely played out in some of the the press conferences I was I was a part of. In terms of being a Goodison, it was obviously really weird. It I've, I've been at Goodison before for under-18s and under-23s games where there's been a really small limited capacity and it felt like one of those. It didn't feel like I was at a big, important Premier League game. And of course, and I think that played out even more so in my mind when instead of going to the press box, because of how far we had to sit apart, I was actually sat in the main stand with a portable, um, <laughs> portable laptop charger and a portable desk and, and all those kinds of things. Um, probably in somebody's season ticket seat I would imagine um, so it, I mean it was all change I, I, it's hard to convey the nuance of this because you, you yearn for fans to be allowed back inside football stadium, and you can't wait for that day even as a journalist um, but by the same token you realise you, you you are privileged to go and cover the games we lose something like I said, in not being able to converse with players after the games, that, that that's one of the most interesting parts of the job, being there when Theo Walcott speaks about how the comeback happened against Watford, for example, in the in the tunnel at Vicarage Road. It, uh, they, they, they're where you get all your colour. I hate that phrase, but all your colour for your, your pieces and your good bits of insight and, and your good quotations. Speaking to Yeri Mina... After the Arsenal game, again before lockdown, where he's talking about his good friend Andrea Gomez and his first minutes since returning from injury. These are all kind of big, important moments that we can chronicle when we speak to the players. We tell it best through the the players' accounts. And we lost most of that. And I think until such time as the whole situation has changed and people are allowed more or less free reign again, that will continue. So it's, it's a challenge, it's, it's a big challenge to us journalists and I would say it was a big challenge over lockdown as well. We, we still had to produce the same amount of content, we still had to keep readers engaged, we still had to make interesting stuff, both audio and, and written. And that's why it, it kind of felt as though the season was just extended by three months, that instead of this being a eight or nine months, however long it usually was, this is now, it felt like a big long year. Of of football, and uh, by the end, I think everybody, uh, all Everton fans, but particularly Everton covering journalists, were ready for a break.
0: No, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and you mentioned just real quick before we get into the final, you mentioned like hearing in the Vicarage Road tunnel. Do you guys often? Is it, how does it work for you guys? Do you guys? Obviously, not everybody gets to go to the podium. Nobody's not everybody's doing a press conference. Do you guys kind of get that one-on-one time with players before the press conferences and stuff like that, like in the dressing room or around the dressing room? And obviously that's not the same now anymore, right? Obviously, like you mentioned. It
1: it, it depends because there are a variety of of post-match functions. You have the press conferences with the two managers. Usually the away manager will go first because they have – Time constraints at the other end, they have places to be and and trains or planes to catch, depending on where they are in the country. You also then have what we call the mix zone, which anybody that's studying journalism or is a journalist will will know about already. But basically in layman's terms, that's where all the players come through and you can speak to some of them after the game. I think most clubs tend to differ. What Everton do is they bring out the player they want to speak to the media. Um, For example, when Theo Walcott scores the winner against... Watford, he becomes the player, inevitably that's going to come to the mix zone. When they want somebody to speak about Andre Gomez, but they don't want to speak Andre Gomez to speak, they'll put up Yeri Mina or Bernard or one of his close friends with, within the squad. If you're a journalist for, say, the Liverpool Echo, what the Liverpool Echo would tend to do is send two reporters, and one reporter would cover the press conferences, which are a little bit more bland, formulaic ordinarily, and another one will go to the mix zone. And the mix zone tends to be where you get the interest and stuff, that's where players tend to speak out a little bit more. Some clubs don't manage it as much as Everton. Some clubs manage it more. Um, I guess the beauty of Everton style is that it just means that you're always likely to get someone. Whereas if you're a reporter and players are trudging through without any media manager at full time and they've just lost a game, none of them are likely to stay and speak to you. So it, it's kind of a, it's a double-edged sword. But... Um, yeah, hopefully that gives an insight into
0: what yeah, I we know. tend I, to I do. Ask, I asked because I'm, I'm a TV journalist over here, so I just was wondering kind of how things differed, differed in you know, the sense because I've, I've never covered an actual um, game. I cover a lot of practice and stuff like that, and they have certain rules, and obviously things have changed for us as well, um, but it was kind of just interesting, and I think that probably a lot of people would be interested in just kind of hearing what you guys go through on a typical day and to kind of match it up with how things have truly changed. Um but now let's let's kind of break down the season. Final thoughts, finish this off and kind of um you know, wrap the season up. Patty, um we'll go to you first, your highlights and lowlights of the season, um and your player of the season and most improved player of the season.
1: Right. The one I remember instantly was player of the season, so I'll go I'll go with that yeah. one first. Um it's between three for me. It's between Rich Calvert Lewin. And Mason Holgate. At the time on the Athletic, I think it was a couple of months ago, um, we did our mini end of season awards, whatever you want to frame them as, and we went for Richarlison as Everton's player of the season. And I, I think he's probably a worthy winner. He's the, the side talisman in attack. Not only does he score, but he tends to create more than the other forwards, particularly Theo Walcott and, and Dominic Calvert Lewin. I think if Richarlison plays well, Everton tend to as well. Uh, He's got out of possession, obviously, um, plays a role in the press, winning the ball back. So for me, Richarlison has had another good season. He's, with Luca Dean, the closest to being an elite player. And by elite player, I mean somebody that could slot into a Champions League side and look at home in the Champions League. I think Richarlison could do that. Luca Dean could. At some point, you would hope Mason Holgate and Dominic Calvert-Lewin could, but I don't think they're there yet. And A couple of years ago, we probably thought Jordan Pickford would do that, but um, he's not quite there yet, if, if we want to, want to be honest about things. So, yeah, but for player of the season, young player of the season is one of Calvert-Lewin and Holgate, depending on your criteria for young player. Um, I think in the end, we went with Calvert-Lewin just because we felt he deserved recognition for the goal return, is the improvement he made in front of goal. He went from being... The guy that didn't score in the minds of Everton fans, the hard working kind of workhorse, the guy that shouldered a lot of the burden and facilitated good input performances and other players to being somebody that developed an eye as a poacher. So, him or him or Mason Holgate, probably calvert Lewin. Highlights of the season are difficult because <laughs> it's, I don't think it's been a positive season for Everton on the whole. Um, Carlo Ancelotti getting the job journalistically being at Carlo Ancelotti's first press conference as Everton manager speaking to him in a smaller group after the press conference um, just going to that press conference even uh, and almost having to pinch yourself as an Evertonian that's lived through Walter Smith's era and Sam Allardyce's era at somebody like Carlo Ancelotti getting the Everton job, that that was one on the pitch, obviously few and far between but uh, I think everybody goes back to the, and rightly so, to the Chelsea game, the three-one, Ferguson's response, the response to the crowd, the synergy between everything within the football club. So that was a, a real positive. Um, I may have missed another question there, so do tell me.
0: if Well, if I, I mean, you it, kind not. of answered it. There's, there's too many. I don't know. I think there's too many low lights to kind of pick one, <laughs> uh, but. Um, but you know, yeah, that's um, he, he answered every other question and and with great detail. <laughs> um, Matthew, anything to add? Any any differences? Um, I agree with what Patty said.
2: I think Chelsea games the obvious highlight. So I think just for a bit of variety, I'll go with for, for like a there's like a, a a moment, just like a a split second moment. I'd, I'd maybe go Leighton Baines's equaliser against Leicester just because someone who has played for Everton pretty much the entire time that I've followed Everton apart from like the first two or three years um, to see that was kind of, that's kind of Baines's last sort of hurrah I guess or sort of his big statement the last real thing that he that he'll be remembered for as an Everton player and as well as that just the sort of the pandemonium that ensued in in Goodison that night Um after that equaliser went in, obviously didn't even really feel like the penalties defeat took that much shine off that moment either. I think obviously, had I haven't gone on to win, it would have been, you know, hailed as this fantastic comeback and then this, this iconic Goodison night. But I think just in isolation, that Baines goal was certainly um, a personal favourite of mine. Uh, low light, I would... I don't know. I'd probably pick a game that I've been to just because of of the um, the sense you get from being at a ground. I'd probably the Norwich game is was awful, but I, f- I feel like I felt more. I almost felt more dejected after the Leicester game the week after it, just because of how Everton had come so close to a pretty commendable result against the team second in the league then, and then obviously the Anfield derby that followed that three days later, which. Um, just a car crash. Um, so, I don't know, take your pick out of any of them. I'll go, I'll go Liverpool just because of the magnitude of the defeat. I think. We, we um, also
1: have to give a, a
0: shout-out, I think, in a positive sense for the, the game against um, so That was going to be mine, to, to just kind of yeah, to variety. Yeah. That would have been mine, just because of how we came back and you know something we're not used to under uh, you know in, in Everton over the past few years. Um, coming back going down what, what was it, 2 nothing? I think it was yeah, yeah. And coming all the way back and, and defeating them no matter what place they're in that's still something that Everton had failed to do on multiple occasions previously.
1: Yeah. Well there's, there's that and of course as I said I was, I was there as a, as a journalist and I was in the press box and that was probably the hardest moment for me being <laughs> somebody that's meant to sit there impartial not every club journalist covers well, covers the team they supported as a child, but I, I don't think it's, it's any surprise to anybody who knows me that obviously I'm an Everton fan. Mm-hmm. So being uh, sat next to our Watford correspondence as well when that goal goes in, you're not too far away. Just to the right, you've got the, the away end and the scenes in the, the away end were were absolutely fantastic and I was just sat there completely motionless in, <laughs> the, in the main stand trying to be professional. That was that was really, really difficult. But I think it also to go back to something Matthew said earlier, it showed that there was an extra, extra layer of resilience to this Everton side under Ancelotti and speaking to the players after the game, particularly Theo Walcott, they just when I asked what had changed, particularly at half-time, and just before half time, they said we realised we had Carlo Ancelotti and he gives us this air of confidence. And I think that kind of sums up best where Everton were and where Everton are heading now. Um, so I have tried to be positive throughout this podcast, which is a big, big achievement given how bad we've been. <laughs> but I did want to give a shout out to the games as well. I was
2: going to say, you don't really do, you don't do like typical match reports of the Athletic, do you? So I, was, I don't know if you had to like rip up whatever you'd written for ninety four. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I remember actually the the Norwich game was an example of having to rip up something because I'd I'd interviewed Silver's goalkeeping coach Hugo Oliveira. He's yeah. a really, really interesting. Guy, and he's probably that's probably the most fun I've had doing a, a longer form interview this season. He'd worked at Benfica, he'd worked with All Black, Jan Black he'd worked with Edison, the Manchester City goalkeeper. And we had that and had started writing the, this hour-long interview that was going to go on the site on Monday. Everton obviously lose and then I get a phone call from my editor saying, scrap that, we can't run that piece right now. Uh, we don't want this piece about how great Everton's goalkeeping coach is. Let's instead write all about how negative things were at Goodison on, uh, on, the, on the Saturday. And again, being an Evertonian, I looked at that and just thought, that's the last thing on this earth that I want to do. But it's my job, so I'll do it. And that, that does happen occasionally. Um, sometimes you get really lucky and the things that you plan to do come off. You're able to write about them. I, I was going to do something as well, going, going back to more negative, I was going to do something on the Richarlison and Calvert Lewin after the Tottenham game. Yeah. After lockdown, um, just wanted to look at their function in the team and how they were performing so well despite the lack of chances that were being created. The story then changes; it becomes something else as as it did against Norwich. So um, it does it does it does tend to change quite a lot. But I think we just have to be really quick on our feet. Um, after Moyes Keane got substituted at Manchester United, I knew yeah. that Moyes Keane would be the story after the three two win against Watford, I knew how they came back, how they did it, what was said, what had been said the week before. Because I can't remember who they played, but they'd had a bad result the, before was, the Watford game.
0: Wasn't the week before when they were up on Newcastle and they lost, or they drew? Am I thinking of the right one? I'm trying to go through the things. Oh, right? well, that was Everton, yeah.
2: Do you mean Everton or Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Everton were up on two, 2 nothing until the 94th minute when they gave up two yeah. goals. So that, that was one of them, but I think it was also early January. Potentially I mean, the Anfield, the Anfield. they January,
1: so it was the Anfield game as well, and they yeah, had a li- little bit of a pause. So I, I basically knew that the story then would be what was said after that game and how they came back against against Watford, how they turned the tables almost from yeah. from the, New, the Newcastle match. So you can get lucky, and you do have to think on your feet. And I think that's just example of of kind of what needs to change throughout games. But I'll be honest, I don't miss doing the ninety minute reports, the on the whistle reports, because. Imagine doing that for, off the top of my head, the Barcelona PSG game a couple of years ago where yeah. um, I think it was Sergi Roberto scored the last-minute goal. That would just yeah. scramble your mind completely. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're lucky we get, we get longer to file and we get to write yeah. what I consider to be more interesting pieces. So I'll try not to moan too much.
2: <laughs> I did one of them at uni. I went to uni in Leicester and I did one last game and they were like 3-0, I think Vardy scored a hat-trick, and they were like 3-0 by 75 minutes or so. so That's
1: quite nice. That's quite nice because you can write it on 75 minutes and then just kind of have a have a breather for the rest of the game. But for anybody that, for anybody that covers journalism, you'll know that effectively the second half, you don't actually spend much time watching the game. You're already writing away, typing up your match notes and, and everything else. We obviously, because we don't do match reports, we tend to just watch the full 90 minutes, which is a a, a privilege you, you wouldn't expect to have to talk about. But but it does actually now happen for us, and we're lucky in that sense, I guess. We're lucky we don't have to file on the whistle, and that allows us extra time to ponder and not make these rash judgments. Yeah. Sometimes it, it becomes a negative, because sometimes editing draw 2-2 two two against sides like Newcastle having been Two, two nil up on 92 minutes or, or yeah, something yeah.
0: 19, and then
1: yeah. you get a, get a phone call at seven o'clock the next day and an editor will tell you that they want you to watch back injury time and dissect everything that went wrong another example <laughs> of where <laughs> i just wants to be any other place than staring at my laptop screen but um, yeah again it's um it, that's just the nature of of the job, particularly covering the side that you, you support. So you you take the rough with the smooth and just try to foreground in your head the moment, for example, you meet Carlo Ancelotti for the first time, or the moment you see everybody going crazy in the Watford away end when you can't go crazy but you're still really enjoying it.
2: Um, Watford game is the one where the fella didn't some fella fall on his head or something like that. It was, it was some...
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that just seems standard for Everton. I remember somebody <laughs> getting really, really injured a few years ago and then it becoming a big oh, the, story on Everton's... It
2: was the Wolves game last season. They fell, yeah. it ended on crutches or something, didn't they, I think?
1: Yeah, and then they they turned these into stories, feature stories on the, on the club site. So, <laughs> I mean, they could have a whole series on injuries sustained in, in Everton away ends. Um, yeah. All you could say is that there haven't been enough of those this season, yeah. more and, more under Carlo. Hopefully, more to come, more still to come. Um, and you would hope that Everton are, are starting to head in the right direction under him.
2: I think uh, I was, for my player this season, I would agree with Charles. And I think he's probably been the most consistent over the whole, had a bit of a slow start, but I think over the course of the whole, what is it, 12 months, he's probably yeah. been the best yeah. um, Everton have had to offer. It. And most improved, I would probably uh, Vita was Holgate, just because I think, while. Well, Calvert-Lewin has obviously improved greatly as well. I think Holgate, I feel like he's been fairly written off by some quarters, and I think as well, Dominic Calvert-Lewin's always been in and around um, the starting eleven for a few years, maybe now, whereas I feel like Holgate has almost come from nowhere. You know, it was only two years ago at the start of Silver's first year that he wasn't even getting in the eighteen, and I was sent out on loan to West Brom, so... Um, I think he's probably Evan's best sense half now, maybe. Certainly the most consistent um, since he broke into the team in October. Um, and I, he's one of the players I'm actually looking forward Evan have got. I'm looking forward to seeing him develop, I think, next season as well. So, um, most improved whole game, I would say,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about my highlight of the season was the lot for game, um, just to, you know, change it up a little bit. Um, in terms of player of the season, agreed, Richarlison, and then. Um, the thing about Dominic I mean, I've always been someone. You listen to the pod, you know. Even two years ago, I've always been someone who's kind of backed him, even in his worst times. Um, but if you look at him, even just at the beginning of this season, the finishing and, and being able to put the ball in the back of the net was, you know, it was very um, minimal. the The product was very minimal, and and it seemed like like Patty said after Duncan Ferguson kind of took over and focused on him, he did improve tremendously and. You know, he got the product. He got the goals, I think, in the first, like, I don't know, 10 matches under Ferguson and Ancelotti. He had six goals or something like that. It was it was a good number. And, um, I mean, just seeing that from my perspective as someone who supported him and, and kind of never really, you know, kind of looked at the bad and tried to just kind of think of the positive with him, um, it was definitely good to see that. Um, but moving on as we look towards next season, obviously we'll look at the transfer window. Um, real quickly here where aside um patty we'll start with you again where aside from the central midfield needs the most work over the summer and are we expecting um many more departures other than the ones we've seen the baines the schneiderlin you know the and then some of the other guys who um who were on loan and and have now um departed the club for good i would i would hope that we will see more departures because i think that's quite an important
1: part of the brief for Marcel Brands this summer. Everton know that they need to trim the squad, that they need to free up funds, both in terms of transfer fees and also on the wage bill, to allow them then to to push on and give Ancelotti more resources. So I think that's going to be pivotal. The work so far has been pretty decent, I would say. You've got to, I think when you look at Morgan Schneidlin, for example, you've got to realise that he had one year left on his deal that he was a highly paid by Everton standards player. And almost aggregate the small fee Everton got with how much they'll save from not having him at the club over 12 months. And then that sum off the top of my head would be up seven or eight billion pounds for for the year. But it's a a good amount of money to save. Um, They've done the same with Fraser Hornby, brought in a, a small fee for him. Kieran Dowell, obviously, as well. Um, and they've, start, they've started that process, they, they released a few the Garbett, Imanias, Kukla Martina, Martin, Martin but I don't do, think there'll be any complaints among the fan base at losing those players the only one is Leighton Baines and I think Baines has a bit of a knock-on effect insofar as Everton weren't sure right up until the end whether he was going to stay, but they were hoping he would and he'd be that second choice option in between Luca Dean as the first choice, and Niels Nkunku, the young lad they've signed from Marseille. And Nkunku is so raw that he's not played a competitive game of football at first-team level, and I, I believe only played for Marseille B last season. So he's going to take some time and certainly can't be Everton's 2nd choice option. You've just got to ask yourself, if you, if you think that's the right solution, you've got to ask yourself what would happen if Luka Dean were to get a bad injury. Uh, would you uh, want this? Young lad, admittedly talented young player from France, to come in as a rookie and be the first choice for large waves of the season? Probably not. Do um, so
2: you think Delph's not in there? Sorry.
1: Delph Del could be, but Delph obviously needs to get himself fit and on the pitch, yeah. doesn't he? And he, the other thing is that he's probably needed elsewhere.
2: Yeah. But
1: what we have to remember is that there will be some money available to Carlo Ancelotti, but some of it will also depend on the extent to which they're able to move players on. And free up money. It's not gonna be an assault on the transfer market like it was at times in the early days under Mashiri. It's gonna to have to be savier, more astute plan and spending. Um, so I think that kind of answers that question, I hope. But there are just there were there are a multitude of areas and I think it you've almost got a, a list in descending order of priorities. So the, the top one I, I for, for everybody, and certainly inside the club will be central midfield. Mm-hmm. If you get one player in at Everton this summer, it needs to be a central midfielder. Then I think it's pretty much a toss-up, depending on what your priorities are. We know they want to resolve the right-back solution, whatever that uh, situation, whatever that is. Find a solution there. Sadibi doesn't look like, obviously, he will, will come back in any capacity, although they haven't completely drawn the line under that. Um, John Joe Kenny a decision yet to be made on him we we understand Seamus Coleman getting on and could probably do a, a job over part of a season but you, you need another option there left back we've said that they will now probably look to dip into the market for cover for Luca Dean even if the reports of a bid for Reggie on were slightly w- wider the mark and then it's being well documented now I'm, I'm almost sick of it myself the Protracted pursuit of Gabriel of Lille, who um, they like predominantly because he had a good season in France and is left-footed and plays on the left side. It's one of the things I e-marked earlier as being kind of really important to people internally. Right wing as well, somebody to dovetail with Theo Walcott. We did a depth chart on the Athletic just before football resumed in, what was it, late May, early June and it's basically Theo Walcott on that right-hand side. You can maybe put Alex Iwobi there if you want, but you're not going to get the most out of Alex Iwobi. Ditto Bernard, who was obviously pretty poor after football resumed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anthony Gordon, that's not his best position, even though he can play there. So it's only really Theo Walcott. Everton needs somebody that can do a lot of the things he does in terms of breaking the lines with his running, his counter-attacking ability, but they ideally need it to be somebody who can get... 10 to 15 goals to supplement what the two lads up front are doing so there are there are a number of priorities I think the absolute priority is central midfield for me I would then probably go to a right back or a right winger next Um, and then you look at what with whatever resources remaining a left-sided centre-back but what I would suggest is given that Everton have gone for Hoiberg already they've tried for him and they've tried for Gabriel, you can kind of see their priorities coming to the fore anyway. So maybe I think slightly differently to to those in charge of the club.
2: Matt, do you have anything to add to that? I think Paddy, you did a piece in the Athletic, didn't you, about uh, Stryker being Everton's lowest priority. Is that right? Yeah. I would would agree with that. The the, the only thing I would maybe say is that... um, Depending on how much you think he would play or not, I think maybe a more senior striker would be potentially a good addition, just to uh, kind of be a more experienced uh, head for you know Keane, Calvert-Lewin, and Richarlison to, to call. I think especially if you if you revert Richardson back to the wing, I think you probably do need reinforcements, maybe. If 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 that's
1: the decision you make, then yeah. then yes, you you would you would need another centre forward. But I would I would also like to see Moise King given more minutes yeah, next yeah, season.
2: Um, aside from that, I think you can kind of take your pick really. I think I think goalkeepers a massive issue. Whether whether or not you think Jordan Pickford is a is a viable long term solution for Everton, I think either way you certainly needs competition if nothing else. Um, it's more well, stronger than he's got. But I think the problem is you've at least got. Bodies, you know, in goal. You can go, you've got Virginia or you've got Lossell still there. Everton don't even have that in, at left back beyond Dean um, or right wing beyond Theo Walker, as you said. So I think it's a case of just getting people through the door for a start. And then if you have the the room to manoeuvre in goal or, you know, maybe secondary concerns, you can look at that then. But I think for the, at first, I think you would say... Um, the flanks really the full backs and wingers and that's obviously after two or three central midfielders hopefully
1: I think I'm going to sound a little bit like Alan Partridge here but Carlo Ancelotti was asked this in a press conference so I'm not not just going off not my full words. Partridge they are not my words but he was asked in I think the final press conference he did before the Bournemouth game if there would be evolution or revolution at Everton this summer and he said evolution which suggests that this is going to be a gradual process. It's not necessarily something that's going to happen overnight. Yeah. I don't think the, the resources are there simply to just rip up the squad and start again, as much as some supporters might want to see that. And I just think that means that it's going to be a project that's going to take two, three, four windows. And, I mean, Matthew's spoken about in goal there, needs competition at least for Jordan Pickford, potentially even somebody to come in and supersede him if Pickford continues to play. At the low levels we saw for part of last season. But that's quite a way down a list of a long list of priorities. We've we've already spoken about at least one central midfielder, a right winger, potentially a striker if for moves, although those two things are obviously interlinked. At least one centre back, left back cover potentially right-back, depends on John Joe Kenny. So all over the pitch, there feels like there needs to be some form of upgrade. And that just simply can't happen in one window. Nor is it probably advisable to yeah. do it in one window. Often when you see drastic overhaul, that's when things go badly. Besides, so I think back to the deal of the season, Ronald Koeman with Everton, which is probably the most pertinent example for us. Fulham, when they came up and spent loads of money just on plays, that were nowhere near good enough. Well, the they, don't jelly,
2: they don't jelly. They the do don't have a, especially not this summer when you've got such a quick turnaround. Yeah.
1: They don't. It's not. It's not possible. Everton's players have three weeks off yeah. before starting um, pre-season. It's just nowhere near enough time, really. Although I don't think they're particularly critical of it given the the circumstances. Yeah. So this this is, and Ancelotti's already said himself he needs players in as quickly as possible so they can bed in for this quick turnaround. So I just think it's got to be about smart recruitment, getting the three or four, concentrating in on the three or four positions that you absolutely need, getting those in, and then almost reassessing from there, um, central midfield or or right wing or or, or, um, goalkeeper. I'm sure we'll revisit some of the stuff Matthew's saying some way down the line, but um, it would be a surprise to see certainly the goalkeeper situation looked at at this moment in time.
0: Yeah, it'll certainly be an interesting off season. Obviously, um, COVID nineteen having a huge effect on on how this how everything will play out moving forward. And and Patty, you said you know it's going to take some time to get this club together to where it needs to be. But let's focus on this upcoming season at this time right now. What's a realistic target for Everton in the twenty 2020, twenty 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 one season?
1: Um, improvement, improvement to the point where they are going back to competing for the initial stated aim last season, which was Europa League football. I think it's been stressed by those on the record and off the record to us that Europe, even just the Europa League, is an important part of the club's strategy. It helps them recruit better players, players that maybe otherwise wouldn't want to come to Merseyside and sit in the rain every day for for the whole season. But it also allows them to get better commercial deals, to bring more money into the club. Given that Everton lost £112 I think it was, in the last set of accounts for the 2018 financial year. That is something that they absolutely need to do. And that is considered a key strand of the strategy moving forward. So the aim will be for for Carlo, I think, to, to target Europa League next season beyond that then to look to push past it and get towards the Champions League in seasons two and three it's obviously a really big ask when you look at how much of a gap there is even between Everton and Wolves at this moment in time but then extend that slightly further and the gap between Everton and Chelsea Everton and Manchester United at one stage Manchester United looked like they were on a downward spiral now they've got this free-flowing attack line that Looks like it's going to score goals in every game. Bruno Fernandes pulling the strings. That's what Edison are up against in the mid and long term. Uh, and it's quite a daunting prospect. Same with Chelsea buying Hakim Ziyech, Timo Werner, probably Kai Havertz from, from Bayer Leverkusen. So they've got to, got to take it step by step. And um, while it's a cliche, I think that the first aim has got to be to get beyond mid-table obscurity and to challenge for Europe once more. take take it stage by stage, and then after then you reassess and you look to bring in a higher quality player and go for the Champions League.
2: Matthew? I think the season since Martinez's first year that I probably enjoyed the most is an Everton fan. Probably Ronald Koeman's first year, because we got 60 points, more than 60 points, finished seventh. Um, And that felt like the most sort of tangible progress we've made since then. Um, if we had another season like that next year with Ancelotti I think that would you'd have to consider that a pretty good success but I also think that was the year after Leicester won the league and I think you saw the following summer how you know a lot of the top six just kind of brought their way back into that top six having had such terrible seasons before that I think you might you certainly see that with Chelsea at the moment I think Um, even though they've not had a a poor season Um, I think Arsenal will get better I think Tottenham will probably get better. I think United will strengthen, won't they? And then City and Liverpool are obviously way off ahead of them. Um, so I think Everton will be obviously. It's not really feasible to expect Everton to go from 12 to the top six in one year, especially with such a short summer. But if we can have a season like that, where we seem to sort of swat away, certainly it could have all the teams below us kind of piece together. You know the the hallmarks of a of a, of a solid starting eleven anyway. Something to build on for next summer, um, and then learn from the mistakes that we made. Certainly in the summer, going into Cuban second year in the transfer window, yeah. um, I think that would be—I'd be pretty pleased with that. Obviously, people want a cup as well, and, and if, as has been kind of rumored, that the, the top six won't be in the, the Carabao Cup, I think whether that whether that happens or not, I don't know, but certainly if. It, if they're not in it, then Everton should really... They should go for it anyway, to be honest, but certainly that should be more of an intensive to go for it. Um, but I think... And also, I think just... I think we... I spoke about this last week, but I think it doesn't really feel like everyone's been on the same page probably since Martins' his first year at Everton. I think if you can get that sort of feeling back around the club, then that would be another sign of progress.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. I think you has hit it on the head. Um, you know just need improvement, need a stepping stone, need something to um, just look like we're moving in the right direction look like, you know, everything is, you know, kind of, like you said, Matthew, all on the same page and headed towards one similar goal, which kind of has felt different, I guess you could say over the past, even though everybody talks about it, you know, every time they come in as new manager um, certainly hasn't been the case. So just hoping for some sort of improvement and, you know, we'll see how, how uh, this break treats us. Uh And we'll we'll go from there. Patty, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Good luck with everything you've gotten on and you've got going on. And enjoy this break you have from Everton. Thank you very much. Matthew, um, as always, great talking to you. Everybody out there, great talking to you guys as well. We will talk to you guys next time.